Welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. This is episode 1616, Nonviolent Communication. Following up on the work of Chris Moore Backman and Ethan Hughes, I want to share this conversation with Carl Stayard on nonviolent communication, first recorded and aired two years ago in April of 2014. A Center for Nonviolent Communication certified trainer, during our conversation today, Carl shares how using NVC can begin the work of restoring our connection with one another in a direct, meaningful way that honors our needs while also meeting the needs of others. Using examples from his own life, he also illustrates the process of NVC and how it differs from a normal conversation or other ways that we might interact. I'm thankful for the open space that was created during the interview that allows for this discussion. I first became aware of nonviolent communication and the work of Dr. Marshall Rosenberg during the first interview I recorded with Dylan Neighbor Cruz near the start of the podcast. After picking up a copy of that book and combining what I found there with The Four Agreements, I found that my view of interpersonal relationships and what it means to communicate well was changed. Though I've since added more resources to my list on how to share ideas and express my own feelings, NVC started my journey down that road and has had an incredible impact on my own experience. It's one of the things that led to my view on what it means to uncouple and how to productively unmarry rather than destructively divorce. Before we begin, this show is made possible by listeners like you who sign up as ongoing members via patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast or who make one-time contributions to the show via the donate link in the resource section of the show notes, as well as by sponsors like Your Garden Solution, Good Seed Company, and Permi Kids. Good Seed Company, with over 40 years in business, believes in our inalienable right to open-pollinated non-GMO seeds for common use. These seeds were saved by our ancestors for generations, continue to sustain us today, and contribute to a bountiful future for the generations yet to come. Learn about the rich history of this company and the importance of saving seeds at goodseedco.net or shop the catalog of ecologically grown organic seeds online, store.goodseedco.net. Kids, created by the incredible permaculture practitioner and educator Jen Mendez, is a resource to inspire and nurture teachers, parents, and families interested in incorporating permaculture education into the lives of children, in the community, and at home. Through the site, Jen offers a free podcast where you can learn how to transition to a rich, ecologically sound life that includes children at every step of the way. And if you'd like to dive deeper, you may be interested in her Community Experiential Education by Design program or the Edge Alliances. Find out more at permikids.com. Now then, on to Carl Stayert. I'll join you again afterwards. Well then, Mr. Stayert, if you are ready to begin, could you give us a little bit of your biography and background, how you came to do what you're doing, and then we can proceed with the conversation about nonviolent communication. Wonderful. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, in the moment, I just I feel excited for this exploration. The intersection of permaculture and nonviolent communication is one that I'm really passionate about. Uh, certainly a lot more of my work has been in 
nonviolent communication professionally, but I've also often thought of nonviolent communication as simply another manifestation of the permaculture principles and vice versa, permaculture being a manifestation of nonviolent communication principles in a different domain. So my bio and background, it's, it's eclectic in a lot of ways. I think of myself as, from a young age, being really passionate about creating community and trying to find ways that I could make the world a better place, <laughs> being a, a young idealist. And that involved being a first grader, trying to organize a rally in my first grade class to create more kind of inclusiveness. <laughs> I don't think I used the word inclusiveness, but I, I knew that I wanted more of a sense of care and friendliness uh, among the first graders. So that has taken me in a lot of different places, a lot of different countries and settings over the years. After I graduated from college, which involved time as a volunteer in Nepal, doing uh, work with Mother Teresa's organization and studying anthropology. But after college, I traveled overseas and really found myself very curious about how to live a life, as Joseph Campbell described, of following your bliss. And not just for hedonistic reasons, but realizing that I had disconnected from what I might call my intrinsic motivation, my natural impulse for aliveness, joy, love, celebration, creation, which I believe is everyone's essence on the planet. And through some reading, through some exploration, I, I began to realize how dampened down a lot of my aliveness had become by the time I was in college that I was kind of going through these motions of, okay, I need to go to college, I need to get a job, I need to get a certain kind of job because of this is my education, etc. And and it, it felt a, a bit too mechanical. And I didn't find myself passionate about a lot of my classes in school. And so that led me after college on this sort of bohemian adventure of, of finding what am I really passionate about? And over many years, and I, unless you want to hear more, I, I won't go into all the different details, but it took me to being an environmental educator and naturalist. I, I worked with environmental and social change nonprofits in D.C. and California and ended up going back to school in grad school after a few years out of school where I studied uh, both anthropology and environmental policy at the University of Michigan. And during all of that exploration, I came upon the global eco-village network and this whole concept of eco-villages. And that intersection of community, sustainability, and creating an intentional space where folks were experimenting with creating a more life-serving culture really turned me on. It just captured my interest. While I was in grad school, I was living in a student co-op, and I found cooperative living to really shift my awareness in some powerful ways and helped me wake up to interdependence. So all of this was before I got exposed to nonviolent communication, but I knew I was passionate about community. I knew I was passionate about sustainability and about consciousness. And so when I finished up with grad school, I ended up 
going to a place called Findhorn, an eco-village in Scotland. And that was now 15 years ago that I first went there. And during that visit, actually, is the first time I heard about nonviolent communication. I don't know if it's the first time I heard about permaculture, but it was probably around the same time that I learned about things like permaculture. And I got to experience this pretty different paradigm of, of living where people were living and I ultimately ended up moving to Findhorn and living there for three years, a few years after grad school, but where I would walk five minutes to work, where I knew everybody in my community on a face-to-face, first-name basis, and where I could see the windmills where my power came from, and I saw the gardens where my food was grown, and I ate meals in a community center where where I was among friends and people interested in the same sorts of things. And nonviolent communication, was that was the first time I heard about nonviolent communication because it was one of the many tools that this experimental kind of community was exploring. But it was not until 10 years ago in 2003 that I began to dive a little deeper into what nonviolent communication is. And so the last 10 years, it's been a big part of what I do. And a lot of what I do is also sustainable community building. I do consulting. I do one, I facilitate something called restorative circles, which is an approach to restorative justice. But in essence, if I were to distill it down, I'm interested in how can individuals and communities invite that flow of aliveness, love, passion that shows up in empathy, authenticity, presence in the world that I think not only is joyful to live, but also allows us to be more of service to each other and to help create a planet that is a lot healthier. So I'm going to pause there. I know that was an unconventional bio-narrative, but that gives you a little flavor of some of the, some of the touch points. For this show, that is a completely standard kind of response. <laughs> Great. I'm because so glad to hear that. <laughs> it's about the narrative of how we come to where we are. And it's looking back, I know in my own life, I could make it a very simple story. You know, I did ABC and here's where I am. But there is a complexity to it. There are many different things that happen to bring each of us to where we are. And Part of wanting to speak with you and Dominic Barter and some of the other people in the NVC community is because I want to explore more of the social and economic aspects of permaculture and how we can work on those things. And it's funny because many of the things that you mentioned in your biography, there are keywords there that I could just check off from my own story uh-huh. and also some of my own work now because of that idea of finding your bliss or finding your calling being able to have that space in order to do that productively and being able to find your own way and to borrow from Mark Lakeman so that we can inhabit our own story and not someone else's. Beautiful. And Findhorn is a place that I've heard about quite a bit and I think I'm going to have to do a little bit more research. From there and all the places that you've gone, how has... So with your background in nonviolent communication, what has that experience been like for you? And what kind of work do you do with it? Though I guess really, let's back up a little. And could you explain what nonviolent communication is? <laughs> sure. I think there are many ways that it could be described. 
there's no one definitive definition, but I experience nonviolent communication as actually operating on two levels. There's both, there's a form or a process which includes some, what I find very powerful differentiations which help support us to stay connected to ourselves, to what's alive in us, what our needs are, what our emotions are, our feelings in any one moment, and to be aware of and to be empathically curious about what other people's needs are in a situation or in life on the planet. And to invite a way of relating where everyone's needs are held with care. And again, the two different levels, there's the level of a form or a process which nonviolent communication offers as a a series of differentiations about being aware of clear observations, being aware of our feelings, being aware of needs, being aware of how we can make requests rather than demands. So that's the level of process. But then at a deeper level, there's simply a consciousness, which isn't exclusive to nonviolent communication, but certainly is the essence of it, which is how can we show up in the world in a way where we're present to our own authenticity, speaking from that place, well, you might also call that speaking from the heart, and also listening to others with empathy, with compassion, with an openness to care for their well-being as well as our own. And so in that sense, the consciousness of interdependence, how do we make a world that works for everyone? So it's both that broader consciousness as well as the specific process that I think of as being nonviolent communication. I mean, I could give a little bit of background about how I specifically got involved with nonviolent communication and what that what that looked and felt like. That aspect of the narrative is one that I, I often share when I do an introduction to nonviolent communication and I think may have some meaning for folks. Yeah, let's go with that. So when I first got involved more deeply with nonviolent communication, just over 10 years ago. It was around the time of the build-up to the first Iraq war, and I was living in the United States at the time. And I remember vividly looking at an article in the newspaper, and there's a photo of a demonstration. And in this photo, there were two men facing each other. And one side of the photo was a man in his 30s with a button-down shirt, and he was leaning across a barricade, and he was it looked like he was screaming because the veins were sticking out of his neck, and he was he, his mouth was wide open. And on the other side of the photo was a man a bit older, maybe in his 50s, with a beard, and he was leaning across the barricade also with veins sticking out of his neck, yelling back at the first man. And at the bottom of the photo was the caption, a pro-war and an anti-war activist in dialogue. <laughs> I don't remember exactly how they described it. But I remember my, something in my stomach sinking when I saw that photo, because something about it was deeply familiar <laughs> with what I had been experiencing in a lot of my work as an activist, as an environmental activist, as a peace or anti-war activist, as a social change activist, that sense of two people yelling at each other. And I distinctly just had the thought, wow, they are not hearing each other. (laughs) 
And that certainly has been my experience now in working with conflict quite a lot in my life now is that when people are upset to the point of raising their voices, they're raising their voices so that they can be heard. And typically, my experience is that neither person is being heard. And there's actually a, a wall or an increasing gap between the two people in those moments. And so, at that same week that I saw that photo, I read an article in The Sun magazine. And in that article is an interview with Marshall Rosenberg, who is the man who sort of created the distinctions that are the process of nonviolent communication, drawing on his deep study of psychology and various spiritual traditions. And in this interview, he talked about what it would be like to empathize, and in fact, he had done this, empathizing with someone who is for the war and someone who is against the war. And in empathizing or, or deeply listening to both of those individuals, he said, we would realize that both of them are actually longing for safety and well-being for their family. That underneath these vastly different strategies and underneath these two individuals yelling at each other across a barricade were some common human values for understanding, for well-being of one's family, for security. And that he had found in his work around the world, in war zones, in hospitals, in prisons, he had found that when people could hear each other at the level of what he called universal human needs, these basic values like security, like understanding, love, family, well-being, that when people hear each other at that level, what used to be a conflict can begin to open into something much more collaborative. Even people I've found in my work who are completely at odds can hardly even speak to each other when they come into the room together. When they're able to hear the basic human needs that they both share, they begin to see each other's humanity and recognize what connects them. And so reading this article had a huge impact on me. I'd been an activist for a number of years, and I'd realized how often I had approached it with uh, a lot of fire and a lot of self-righteousness. And I had wondered how, you know, I'd get in these arguments with university administrators at my graduate school about, like, we need to be more sustainable. The university is completely wasteful. And I would get this pushback from the administration. And I found myself curious once when the president of the business school agreed to facilitate a conversation between myself and the vice president of the university, who I had had acrimonious and somewhat angry conversations with on numerous occasions, and I found him so intractable. But when the president of the business school, who I was a little suspicious of, because at that time, I really was like, I couldn't imagine that he would offer understanding from my perspective. He sat with us and he sat and he invited me to speak about what I what mattered to me. And I spoke about how we need to be more sustainable on campus and the ways that we could do that. And he listened and he empathized. He reflected back what he was hearing from me. And I thought, wow, this guy's great. He's totally sympathetic to where I'm coming from. This is awesome. And then he turned to the vice president of business operations and he asked him what was going on for him. And he spoke about his concern about 
where the university was at and what was fiscally responsible and what was doable change within the time frame. And the president listened to him. And I was taken aback. I thought, wow, like he's really hearing this guy. And I was so touched and moved and inspired by how this man listened to both of us. And we both felt like he was on our side and a completely different conversation became possible, holding both of our needs. So this is a little flashback I'm mentioning that resonated with me when I read this article interviewing Marshall Rosenberg. And I thought, this is what I've been longing for. I've been longing to feel my passion for social change, for environmental change, for creating more peaceful world but to do it by building bridges, by helping people connect and understand each other. And so I voraciously read the rest of this interview where Marshall talked about going into prisons and helping women who had experienced sexual assault or rape, how he would support dialogue between them and the men who had done these things, and how through healing dialogue, he would help a mutual understanding occur and a self-responsibility occur on the part of the men, which was much deeper than any punishment seemed to lead to transformation. The, the depth of hearing that occurred on both sides led to a healing that it moved me so much to read about. And I've actually been involved in similar work in the 10 years since I read that interview. And so that article and the timing of it in my life was such a huge gift and such an impetus to dive into nonviolent communication to find a way, and it's taken many years for me to find the way to try to embody it more fully because I had so many habitual ways of thinking and communicating in the way of just this way of being present and available both to myself, my own feelings and needs, and to the feelings and needs of, of others. So... That's a bit of my uh, origin story in, in coming to nonviolent communication. I can't say that I came to the place that I'm in today in a way that would even be considered parallel to your path at all. I was never an activist. I grew up in a relatively conservative area and in a conservative way. But thank you for that story, because for me, I feel a little less alone in the world with the work that I'm doing and the things that I'd like to accomplish. And it was something that a friend of mine said to me once that I'm still trying to reconcile that internal versus external perspective that we have in that I asked him one time how he was doing. And before he answered that question, he just stopped and looked at me and he said, you know, I really like it when you ask me how I'm doing because you want to hear the answer. There's something about that. And in a lot of what you just shared with us, Many of the thoughts that I've been going through recently as I try to figure out some of these social hurdles and economic hurdles within permaculture and really building a better world and a permanent civilization is about how can we have dialogue and find the things that we have in common with others. Because I have friends who I have very little that I share with when it comes to a political, religious, or even a social context except for our friendship. And we can sit and be diametrically opposed to one another on a topic, but because we can have a dialogue and respect the place where the other one comes from, we can accept those differences and be confident in the things that we share. Yeah, thanks, Scott. I mean, it's absolutely my experience as well, that if we are willing to listen at a deeper level, if we're willing to 
see and hear people with a fresh openness to seeing what it is that they long for, what it is that they value. I'm struck again and again by the potential for connection and even collaboration where I might have thought it was impossible before. And one place where I find this more than anywhere else is when I, when I go into prison as a volunteer. So I, I volunteered in a few prisons in California and here in Washington State where I currently live. And every time I'm touched and inspired anew by the profundity of human connection that I experience. I, you know, before I'd ever gone into prison, I felt a distinct care for the men who were incarcerated, but I certainly saw them as other, and I found myself with a good degree of fear of experiencing intimacy or connection with them or being in the same room with them for that matter. And what I found again and again is that when I share from my vulnerability about what it is that I value. And when I'm open to and invite them to share at that level as well, we meet in a place that I hardly met with anyone before I came to this kind of work. Because I hear their struggles with missing their family. I hear the depth of remorse that they have in the impact of their actions on others. I hear the longing they have for more freedom and dignity in their lives. And when I hear them at that level, I, I also find they are, they are my teacher in such profound ways. And the same can be done in any kind of environment where we might experience someone as another, let's say someone of a different political persuasion, or I was involved somewhat with the Occupy movement and you know, how can we have a dialogue between folks who are in a lot of pain about the financial inequality on the planet, the treatment of the natural world, and folks who have the label of being in the 1%? How can we invite the possibility of a collaborative dialogue there? I recognize it may seem like a real challenge, and I want to hold out the possibility that these dialogues, in my experience, are quite possible if we remember that every organization, every government, every corporation is comprised of human beings who, however tragically they may be making their choices in action at times, that underneath are basic human motivations, basic longings for well-being, for recognition, for love, for acceptance. Your mention of sharing your own vulnerability. When I interviewed Dave Jackie a few months ago, as part of our interview, he was very candid and very honest to the point that there were some things that we later decided were best not to share publicly. But in that, he said, you know, let's take this back to 1984. Vulnerability is strength. And I'm really, I'm reading Mark Kurlansky's Nonviolence right now, which is a history well, what is the subtitle for it? The History of a Dangerous Idea. So it's more of a historical overview of this concept. And one of the things that he mentioned in there that really got to me is that our language to talk about something about being nonviolent is that it's, it's not violence, but that we don't have a word that represents that directly, that then the negation of that word would be a representation of violence. We glorify in many ways war and conflict 
and that it's for me at least i find it's hard sometimes to try to have these conversations because they sound ephemeral or wishy-washy or easily dismissed because they seem like flights of fancy but that's just some of my struggle with this is to be able to be as open and honest as i can be so that we can have greater depth of dialogue and really represent those needs that people have and in many cases are unable to express because of the story that society tells about how they should be or how they should act when there's pain and suffering there that can't be addressed hearing you speak to that i particularly when you speak of the sort of the perception perhaps of something like nonviolence as being wishy-washy or distant I find it so meaningful to speak to the fact that while nonviolent communication is sometimes called compassionate communication, and I certainly find it being a path of compassion, by the same token, I also see it as a path of empowerment. And I don't want to separate the two. So in that way, it's both about being empathic and receptive to the needs of others, as well as fully valuing connecting to and expressing our own authenticity and aliveness and taking action in relation to it. So in that way, it's not a giving up of our own ground in favor of care for others, but it's, it's truly caring for our own needs and well-being, staying grounded in that, being self-full. I like to use the term self-full rather than selfish. Self-full as we also recognize our shared humanity with other humans and our common connection to all life on the planet. And so in that sense, again, it's so in harmony with the permaculture principles of uh, planet care, people care, fair share, that those concepts are perfectly intertwined within the essence of nonviolent communication. My exposure to nonviolent communication was one of my permaculture mentors, colleagues, friends, was living in an intentional community in Hawaii. And they were using Dr. Rosenberg's book, uh, Nonviolent Communication, A Language of Life. And he recommended that I read that. And they were also doing some co-counseling in order to communicate clearly within their organization. As part of that, I would recommend certainly that anybody read the book. Mine has all kinds of notes and underlining and other things. But could you walk us through a bit of what nonviolent communication that process is like and also give us a bit of information if someone would want to get involved in this after, say, reading Dr. Rosenberg's book and wanting to explore it further? Yeah, so to walk through the, the essence of the process, I, I often tell a story from about 10, 15 years ago with my father, a situation with my father, which feels so relevant to my own journey in relation to this work. So at that time of this conversation with my father, I hadn't been exposed to nonviolent communication. And he had, about 10 years earlier than that, stopped talking to his father. So my grandfather and my father weren't speaking. My father had a lot of upset about some things that had happened between himself and his father. And so the connection was was pretty much gone, and there there was no communication. And I was home visiting my father at the time, and I brought up a conversation I'd had with my grandfather and mentioned to my father that my grandfather was in the hospital. And my father turned to me, and he said, you're a traitor, you don't care about me. And at the time, 
all I could do was just sputter and get really frustrated and angry back. And I turned to him and I just said, you know, how can you talk to me this way? Like, that's so unreasonable. Like, what, you know, what's your problem? And the conversation just degenerated from there. We had two upset people just blowing off steam and not going anywhere. And and one of us stormed out of the room and that was it. And had I at that time had the awareness of what I spoke to earlier on this call about universal human needs, I would have responded in a very different way. And in fact, in the 10 or so years since I've begun my work with uh, and deepened my work with nonviolent communication, I found myself having repeats of that conversation with my father, but with a very different response and a very different outcome. And so I'll just walk you through how my response might have been different had I been aware of these human needs and also of my feelings in that moment. So the first thing that I invite folks to do when in a challenging situation, or really in any situation, even if we're having a great time, (laughs) I find it really supportive to start by getting self-connected. So connecting to ourselves, and this could take just a moment, a second or two, or it could take an hour. But, you know, for myself in a live conversation with my dad, I might just take, even if it's 30 seconds, just to pause Take a deep breath, because breath is a great way to slow down an intense situation and and bring some more oxygen online and (laughs) switch from the reptilian brain into something a little bit more reflective. And just notice what's happening inside of me. And while I may not say these words out loud to my father internally, I can name to myself, what are my observation, feeling, need? And if there's a request that I might have in that situation. So for me internally, that would look like a very brief inner reflection on, wow, when I hear my dad saying that to me, I feel frustrated. And underneath that frustration, I feel fear. And what's underneath that frustration and fear? Oh, what I'm needing is I'm really longing for understanding and some connection And I also, I want to be seen actually for my care for my dad and my care for my grandfather. And my request to myself in that moment might be to just allow myself to notice what's happening in that moment. So just even silently doing that sort of checklist in my, in myself, while it's taken me some time to get fluent in it, has become an amazingly powerful way to self-regulate an intense conversation, along with breath, along with just putting some awareness on my body sensations. From there, I then have two options. I can express myself to my father, and I can also offer some empathic listening to him, whether that's me listening to him silently with empathic presence, or whether that's through verbally making a guess at what it is that's going on for him. What might he be feeling and needing in that moment? And so what I find myself often doing is because if I'm recognizing, I'm guessing he's pretty upset if he's saying these things to me in the way that he did, I am finding myself curious and I offer an empathic reflection. So I might say, after my father has said, you're a traitor, you don't care about me. After I've self-connected, I might say, 
Papa, I'm wondering if you're really frustrated and want some understanding of how upset you are about your connection with your father. And in my experience, that has opened up a completely different conversation with my father. While he may not immediately soften, me offering just some curiosity about what's happening for him by guessing at, hey, are you feeling pissed off because you really want to be understood for your pain? I may or may not be right about it, about my guess, but that curiosity invites a different kind of response. He has a sense of being heard or seen or cared about in a different way than than with my habitual kind of fighting back with him. And as I was just saying before, I don't want to only empathize. I also want to express myself. So if my if I notice my father shifting and you know, relaxing a bit, which I usually find with a little bit of empathy that I see him soften, then I might also say, hey, Papa, could, do you feel able to hear what's going on for me in the moment? If I have a sense of an opening there, I would offer, hey, I hear how upset you are, and I want you to know how much I care about you and our connection. It matters a lot to me that we have a loving, supportive connection and I recognize, even though if it's tough for you, I also want to be able to have a relationship with my grandfather. And I know that that brings up a lot for you. And I hope that we can find a way that you can find acceptance for that. But this is something that's really important to me. So that kind of a dialogue where I'm both being empathic and caring toward my dad's well-being and needs, as well as expressing my own needs and what I'm longing for has led to a profoundly different relationship with my father. So that's walking through a specific conversation that has has really made a difference in my life. Thank you for taking the time to share that. I can think of some times in my own life where I've had conversations that have, well, gone poorly (laughs) because of not stopping to self-reflect and realize the place that I come from and how that affects everything else and that those ideas of projection or casting, you know, our own feelings out on others because of the place that we're in in that moment. And Scott, you had asked also about uh, ways that people could explore more if they're intrigued and and hungry for more specific and more uh, in-depth exploration of nonviolent communication. There are great resources of a variety of kinds for experiencing nonviolent communication. You mentioned uh, Marshall Rosenberg's book, uh, Nonviolent Communication, A Language of Life. Uh, there are many other resources as well. A great global portal for these resources are through the Center for Nonviolent Communication. And that's the website for that organization is www.cnvc.org. So, Center for Nonviolent Communication.org, CNVC. And that organization is based in New Mexico, but really nonviolent communication is a global phenomenon being shared. There are trainers leading trainings, uh, various events, learning opportunities around the world, and certainly across the United States. You can find trainers and learning events through the cnvc.org website. There are also regional ones, for example, here in the Pacific Northwest in the Puget Sound area. We have our own regional nonviolent communication organization that people can visit and the same for areas like the Bay Area. So there are 
sort of sub organizations that are affiliated with the Center for Nonviolent Communication, as well as certified trainers with the Center of Nonviolent Communication. And other ways that folks can learn, there are DVDs, there are audio recordings of Marshall Rosenberg and other certified trainers. So I definitely invite folks to find, if at all possible, finding in-person learning events, I find to be profoundly supportive to the integration of this work. Because reading in a book, while it certainly can offer something, it's a bit like trying to learn permaculture through just reading a book. I find that you have to get your hands in the dirt. You need to you know, get out there and, and actually see things in action. And similarly for nonviolent communication, engaging with other human beings face-to-face is such a profound way to really get this into our bones. And that leads me to one other strategy, which is joining or creating your own nonviolent communication practice group is a wonderful way to deepen with a group of friends or neighbors or colleagues. And there's a workbook, a companion workbook to the nonviolent communication book that actually offers a template for creating and facilitating those kinds of practice groups. And that that's a book that you can also find at the cnvc.org website. The companion workbook to the nonviolent communication book. And it's written by a woman named Lucy Liu, who has done a lot of work with NVC in the prison system. So those are some great resources I highly recommend to folks. Oh, and I realize too, if, if anyone's interested in sort of my own approach to bringing nonviolent communication and restorative circles and community building into various communities in the world, I have a website at findflow.org. So it's F-I-N-D-F-L-O-W.org. And glad to support folks in the ways that I'm able. And I will ensure that there are links to all of those in the show notes to make it easier for folks to be able to find you, the Center for Nonviolent Communication, and the other materials that you shared with us. Wonderful. Thanks, Scott. Well, I shouldn't say we've covered everything that I wanted to in this conversation. I could probably talk to you for hours about this process and the stories that go with it and what it's like to work in prisons and around the world. However, for the time that we allotted for this conversation, we're coming to a close. With that in mind, is there anything else that you would like to add to this conversation for the listeners? I'm just really grateful to have any opportunity to speak about this work and the impact that I've experienced it having. I see it as one of the really profound gifts and tools that those of us interested in creating a world that works for everyone, that is sustainable, thriving, and resilient. I found that this aspect of communication and how we engage around conflict and how we actually harvest the rich energy that's contained within conflict and find the gift in it is so, so essential. So I'm, I'm always pleased to have an opportunity to share it. And I, I hope that it nourishes and serves others in some way. So thanks so much, Scott. Well, thank you for joining me, Carl. I appreciate every time that I get to speak with someone and get to expand my understanding of a topic and in turn get to share it with the world. I'm sure that this will help many people who are on this path with us to building a better world. Thank you. And that was Carl Steyer. Find out more about his work at findflow.org 
and more about nonviolent communication at cnvc.org. I find that nonviolent communication helps us to think in a different way, to act in a different way, and to be different. It isn't a panacea, but nothing really is, not even permaculture, as much as I love it. Our work requires ending the isms that divide and dehumanize one another in order to create the world we want to live in. Is it naive to think that we can work against what seems sometimes like our human nature to be brutal to one another? Maybe. But I grew up with the stories of generations of my family living in poverty and in that place of scarcity, finding the humanity of people they were told were wrong, that were different, that were others, and yet wound up becoming friends and helping and assisting one another. From my own family's experiences, I also grew up with this vision presented by Gene Roddenberry, where we could live in a post-scarcity society where each of us lived towards our own calling. Star Trek was and remains for me a symbol of what each of us could become if we were free to explore our lives, the world, and with the right technology, the Alpha Quadrant. Those visions of the possible are why I remain an idealist that believes in those stories, the ones that say we can create a just, peaceful, and joyful world. Doing so starts with me, my own life, my own journey. If you're listening to this, for you, in that same place, it starts with you. Together we can escape the thinking that separates us and get further into the deep work of designing nonviolent communities, cultures, cities, and societies that take care of Earth, ourselves, and each other. If there's any way that I can help you achieve these goals, get in touch. Call 717-827-6266. Email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Write the Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dolphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Until the next time, my wish for you is for all the peace in the world.